what's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. A $3 billion accounting error. That's how much the Pentagon says it overestimated U.S. military aid to Ukraine. Find out what that means. First hotels, now public school gyms. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are reacting to New York City's latest method of housing illegal immigrants. From approval to concern to a lawsuit against it, Montanas are weighing in on the state's new TikTok ban. A documentary into the detriments of COVID vaccines. We hear from the director about dramatic negative health effects and how victims were abandoned by health agencies. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is out of the Pentagon. It says it accidentally overvalued U.S. military aid to Ukraine by $3 billion. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the high-dollar error. Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh said, During our regular oversight process of presidential drawdown packages, the department discovered inconsistencies in equipment valuation for Ukraine. Singh said the Pentagon took some military equipment sent to Ukraine from existing equipment stocks. It later used the new purchase price value for the equipment when estimating the value. The Defense Department did not state when the accounting error was discovered, nor did it provide further details as to exactly which weapons had been mistakenly overvalued. The mistake means that the Biden administration may be able to delay asking Congress to authorize more aid for Ukraine. That will no doubt be welcomed by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky ahead of Ukraine's much-anticipated counteroffensive. The Biden administration announced on May 9th that it is sending a military aid package worth over a billion dollars to the war-torn country. This to help bolster its air defenses and sustain its artillery ammunition needs. The United States has sent about $37 billion to Ukraine since the start of Russia's invasion in February 2022. Lawmakers have raised concerns regarding the growing aid to the country and called for increased oversight. Representative Matt Gates called out the Biden administration earlier this year for funding he says would allow pensions and social support to be paid to Ukrainians. Help me understand how U.S. taxpayers paying for pensions in Ukraine is, is a good idea for our country. Gates also criticized the reports of corruption in Ukraine. Infrastructure minister arrested for stealing $400,000. Deputy head of Zelensky's office can't explain where the sports cars came from, so he had to resign. Uh, deputy defense minister resigned over contracting corruption. The accounting error means that there is still over $5 billion in funding available for Ukraine, far more than even the largest single package provided to the war-torn country. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The U.S. Navy plans to make changes in the wake of a series of suicides last year. Back in April of 2022, three sailors from the USS George Washington died by suicide within one week. No correlation was found among the deaths. Four more sailors also died by suicide within a month at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Maintenance Center in December. Navy officials shared Thursday the results of an investigation into the circumstances surrounding the deaths. They found the military branch failed to provide a basic quality of life for sailors on the George Washington as the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier goes through an overhaul. Sailors reported facing power outages, lack of hot water, and unbearable temperatures on the ship. According to the report, the Navy housed them in unacceptable conditions and did not provide adequate mental health resources. 
Navy officials have made a series of recommendations to address the issues. For the first time, they want to develop a quality of service standard. It would combine the quality of life and work experience. The Navy also recommends defining when a ship is habitable for sailors and making more mental health resources available for the crew. No timeline has been set for implementing the recommendations. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle commenting on New York City's approach to the illegal immigrant surge. The city is now housing people in public school gyms and historic hotels. Here are the reactions. New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced on Tuesday that the city might use 20 gyms belonging to public schools to house immigrants. Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene on Thursday commented saying, this is at the American taxpayer's expense and he shouldn't be housing illegal aliens in the country. That's basically aiding and abetting illegals at the taxpayer's expense, and I share their outrage. Democratic Congresswoman Richie Torres of New York told Fox News that absorbing a wave of migration is an unrealistic expectation for a local government with limited resources even in New York City. So as far as I can tell, the mayor's doing the best he can within our broken immigration system. This comes as the iconic Roosevelt Hotel, located in Midtown Manhattan's business district, is being repurposed as a migrant processing center. A New York real estate broker calls it an interesting adjustment to the historic site. We know that people need help. It's amazing that we're able to help them. Conversely, we've got American working poor families that are in desperate need of help. We've got an educational system that's, that's been broken for decades. What about the American children? What about the vets that are being displaced? This comes as more immigrants arrived in the Big Apple by bus on Friday morning. Around 600 immigrants get to the city every day. Just, to, I need everybody to wrap their heads around that for a moment. 4,200 people showed up in our city in one week with the already 65,000 that was here already and saying we need full care and shelter. Mayor Adams keeps asking for federal aid, saying the city can't accommodate the incoming people. Mayor recently tried busing migrants to areas with Republican leadership in upstate New York. However, officials there filed lawsuits and judges ruled in their favor, taking away that possibility from the mayor. And the mayor on Thursday reacting to reports that he's planning to house immigrants on Rikers Island. We're going to let you know, so I, I, look, we shouldn't speculate what we're considering other than everything is being considered. Rikers Island is home to an infamous prison facility. A Pittsburgh district attorney candidate who is heavily funded by George Soros wins the Democratic primary. Matt Dugan defeated 26-year district attorney Stephen Zapala, which gave Dugan over $700,000 for his campaign, according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Without that money, Dugan would have been far behind his opponent in funding. Zapala is already planning a comeback, however. He wants to face Dugan in the upcoming election and plans to switch to the Republican Party to make that possible. A spokesman for Zapala said in a tweet that Dugan is allowing a group funded by one billionaire to control his campaign. He said they'll control his office if he's elected. Billionaire George Soros is known for funding left-wing candidates, including those who are seen as anti-police. That's to support his efforts to change the criminal justice system. Former Biden administration official Sam Brinton is arrested again for baggage theft. The former senior Department of Energy worker was taken into custody in Maryland 
Brinton identifies as non-binary and faces charges of grand larceny after allegedly stealing luggage from Reagan National Airport near Washington. The 35-year-old was also charged in October for stealing luggage off a carousel at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. The luggage and its contents were worth over $2,000. In December, Brinton was again charged with stealing luggage worth over $3,000 from a Nevada airport. Another case is pending after a fashion designer based in Houston said she saw the former official wearing clothing from her missing luggage in public photos. Brinton has managed to avoid jail time so far. On December 12th, the Department of Energy said Brinton was no longer a part of the agency but did not give a reason. Now we hear from the director of an NTD original documentary. It's called The Unseen Crisis, Vaccine Stories You Were Never Told. It reveals firsthand accounts of those who suffered after receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. Let's find out more. Joining me now is Cindy Drukier, the host of The Nation Speaks. Cindy, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Can you please tell us what motivated you to make this documentary about COVID vaccine injuries? I have been reporting on COVID vaccine injuries since, you know, fairly early on. And, you know, the, to me, the stories were, were shocking and it's shocking that people are having such bad health outcomes. But the other shocking part was that nobody wanted to hear about them. People, they were just basically completely ignored and abandoned by, you know, the health agencies, by the drug companies, the people you would think would want to help them. And, you know, interviewing them, talking to them is one thing, but going to their homes and seeing how it's impacted their lives, you know, seeing people, you know, a woman in a wheelchair trying to raise her three kids, a 12-year-old girl who was in the trials, Maddie DeGarry, She's now in a wheelchair with a feeding tube. She's 14 now. And it, it, I mean, it's just turned people's lives upside down. And I felt that if I went into people's homes and really saw for myself and showed people what it looked like on a, on a very kind of personal basis, it, it would have more impact and maybe more people would be aware of what was going on and, and you know, care about it and maybe help raise awareness that these people need help. Yes, definitely. And that is just so tragic. In the description, it says this is a documentary about people, not politics. Can you explain more about that? Well, you know, it's really strange because somehow all the issues around COVID became very politicized. And when you look at, let's say, the community, the people who are vaccine injured, well, there's nothing political about who, who you know, came up short and got unlucky and was severely injured after they got their COVID-19 vaccine. And yet somehow it's portrayed as a political issue. So suddenly people, no matter what their political leanings were before, if they come out and say, hey, you know, it's possible that there are some negative consequences for some people getting this shot. Suddenly they're labeled, you know, they're censored, they're labeled right wing, they're, you know, whatever else comes with it. And it's, it's has nothing to do with politics whatsoever. It's purely about healthcare and responsibility and accountability. And so that's, that's what the story is about. It has nothing to do with politics. Giving an objective view here, what was the most difficult part about making this documentary for you, Cindy? Um, I think doing justice to their stories. 
and doing justice to the complexity of the story. There's their, you know, their health problems, the fact that they're ignored, the fact that they get diagnosed with psychosis because doctors are not informed that this could be a problem and they can't figure out what's wrong with them when they go to emergency rooms. There's the discrimination and censorship that doctors have faced. There's just so many elements. The, the compensation program, which is pretty much a joke, all of these aspects to it, how, how to bring that forward in you know, a way that's compelling to people, that gives them you know, a full picture of things, and yeah, basically doing justice to it. It was a, it was a very complex story, and as a, as a filmmaker, that was absolutely the hardest part. An important job you have, and what hope do you have that this documentary will make an impact on the world? There's a, for the people out there that are already convinced this is happening, I think the documentary will be, you know, useful and, and interesting to them. But really, I was thinking about the people who, you know, might have heard about it or and, and are skeptical, aren't sure, is it really a thing, how big of a deal is it, or the people who haven't heard about it at all. I was really aiming at them to bring them into people's homes, tell personal stories, show the full scope of what it all means. And I, I think it's hard to, you know, turn away and ignore and, and say, okay, this is all made up or something like that if once you see the film. So that's really who I'd like to see at people who might be, you know, unsure that this is actually happening. Cindy Drukier, host of The Nation Speaks, thank you so much for the preview. Thank you. To watch or learn more about the Unseen Crisis, vaccine stories you were never told, visit unseencrisis.com. This NTD original documentary premieres tonight on Epic TV at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to Epic TV to access this and more original documentaries, shows, movies, and other great content. The Supreme Court just handed down a win for social media companies yesterday. It said Twitter was not liable for aiding and abetting ISIS and declined a case against Google on similar grounds. Let's take a look in depth at what this means. Joining me now is Andrew Selipak, social media professor at the University of Florida. Andrew, thank you for making the time today. Thank you. It is absolutely tragic what happened to the victims and their families in the Paris and Istanbul terrorist attacks. The question is, are Google and Twitter liable? The Supreme Court says no. Can you explain this ruling? Well, what the Supreme Court did was take a very kind of limited look at this particular, these particular cases. Rather than judging Section 230, making an evaluation on Section 230, they simply looked at the two platforms and whether or not the evidence was present for them to be liable for the actions taken by others who consume content on those platforms. So what they did was limited in scope. It didn't take any action against Section 230, uh, and it will have no effect on social media platforms moving forward, or the internet as a whole. Now, first, let's talk about this limited scope. In the Google case, the family of the victim said the company recommended pro-ISIS videos on YouTube. Are things like this happening? Well, I think what we're seeing now is that case goes back to, or the incident goes back a, a few years now, is that the social media platforms actually did have a problem and allowed ISIS to have accounts across different social media platforms. They had Facebook accounts. They had other social media accounts. Uh, the platforms now have done a much better job of eliminating 
uh, ISIS, eliminating other terrorist organizations. But, I mean, you can still find the Taliban on there. Uh, and then whether or not you decide the Taliban's a terrorist organization. Uh, so what we've seen is that they've done a better job self-regulating, uh, doing a better job where they're moderating the content that's available on there. Uh, and that's really being done by the platforms themselves, not because they're being required to. And after the ruling, Google's general counsel said they will continue to safeguard free speech online and combat harmful content. Are these companies doing enough? I think it depends on what we classify as harmful content. Uh, are they doing what they can to limit the reach of terrorist organizations? Probably. Are they doing what they can to limit the reach of content that can affect, say, young teenagers with body image issues, with anxiety issues? The fact that young teenagers are on these platforms, they're constantly consuming content. That content is influencing how they see themselves, how they see others. And then we have a separate category probably with TikTok. So um, what we're really looking at is that, yes, the platforms are doing what they have determined is enough. Uh, and part of that comes from the fact that there's just really not a lot of regulation when it comes from Congress. Uh, what we saw with the Supreme Court, I think there was probably a lot of members of Congress who were hoping the Supreme Court would really wade into this issue and take the pressure off of them from having to make any decisions or pass any new regulations or legislation. And what we instead have is kind of a return to the status quo. And as we zoom out here, the decision leaves the battle over Section 230 unresolved. What do you think needs to happen to protect users and companies? Well, I think one of the problems is that Congress and sometimes members of the media, members of the public, have a misunderstanding of what Section 230 does in terms of the unintended consequences of eliminating it. If Section 230 was somehow overturned this afternoon, if Section 230 was somehow overturned this weekend, if Section 230 was somehow overturned and eliminated up, uh, you know, in the next week, the Internet itself would change dramatically. The, the platforms themselves would have to make one of two decisions, either to go in and moderate everything, which would be cost prohibitive, or to moderate nothing. Uh, and if you think that there is sort of racist, sexist, homophobic content online now, and that there's a lot of content we wouldn't want people to see, it would be that on steroids. And that's just because the platforms would have to decide, are we going to moderate nothing or everything? Uh, and the end result would be a vastly different internet. And this is included in not just social media platforms, but all of the internet. It would be reviews that you would see on Yelp. It would be uh, if people left a product review on the Walmart website or on Amazon. So what we would have is a vastly different internet, one we would not recognize today. A very interesting and very tricky subject to wade into. Andrew Sulipak, social media professor at the University of Florida, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Montana's state-level TikTok ban sparked a variety of reactions, including a lawsuit against the ban. TikTok influencers and experts weighed in with their opinions. Here's the story. For some Montanans, the pros of a total ban on TikTok outweigh its cons. It sounds like there's some very serious risks with using it and the information that's being collected from it. And so after hearing about it and then doing some research and learning a little bit more, I, I, I think I agree with it. It seems like a good thing, yeah. If it's, if it's something that's stealing people's information, yeah, it's probably a good thing. Governor Greg Gianforte signed a bill Wednesday banning all residents from using TikTok in Montana. Countering this, five TikTok users filed a lawsuit in federal court to block the ban. They claim the ban violates their First Amendment rights. It's 
the oldest trick in the book to try to justify taking away the speech of Americans. And that's why it's something that we need to fight. We can't just accept the idea that something is bad for national security and therefore it justifies limiting our speech. The legislation doesn't punish individuals for accessing TikTok, but rather targets the app and app stores. Yet experts say there are other factors to consider. People are concerned. They're concerned about losing their access to this app, especially small business owners. I've heard from uh, people in Montana that use TikTok to access customers across the country. It's a really small state. The customer base is small. They need TikTok to, you know, build a business. Montana said TikTok could face fines of $10,000 per violation per day. Violations include each visit or download by any user. David Schaffness, an associate professor of cybersecurity at Northeastern University, argued that the ban would be difficult to enforce. The law is trying to force Apple and Google through their app stores and TikTok itself. Uh, it's trying to force them to deny access to TikTok um, based on whether they are located in the state of Montana. And so the challenge for these companies is that when your mobile device contacts their servers, they don't know where you are. All they see is something called an IP address. An IP address says where you are on the internet, but it doesn't say anything about where you are geographically. Montana-based TikTok creator Christian Poole frowned on the new legislation. There's still four years of like, you know, me growing this fan base and all of a sudden, you know, one day our, rep our governor doesn't like it, it goes away. I don't know, I'd, I'd be pretty PO'd a little bit. TikTok called the ban unlawful, saying it would defend the rights of our users inside and outside of Montana. Twitter is going after Microsoft. An attorney for Twitter owner Elon Musk sent a letter to Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. The letter accuses Microsoft of abusing Twitter's data access privileges, including refusing to pay for tweets. According to the letter, Microsoft refused to pay to maintain data access through Twitter's Application Programming Interface, or API. It comes after Twitter erected a paywall earlier this year to charge for data. The API access could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. The letter calls on Microsoft to provide information about its past two years of Twitter API usage by June 7th. In recent months, Twitter owner Elon Musk has stepped up his criticism of Microsoft as a perceived rival in artificial intelligence development. AI relies heavily on ingesting publicly available internet content, such as tweets. Microsoft did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The Hollywood Actors Union asked members yesterday to authorize a possible strike. The move would add new pressure to major studios already facing a writer strike, which has halted production of movies, scripted series, and late-night shows. NTD's Kost Temenes tells us more. The SAG-AFTRA Actors Union set a June 5th deadline for its 160,000 members to cast ballots in a strike authorization vote. If approved, the measure would allow union leaders to call a work stoppage if they fail to reach new contract agreements with major Hollywood studios. Picketers gathered last week outside Universal Studios in Los Angeles to support protesters from the Writers Guild of America. The union has told us as members to come out here. Um, they've told us to uh, honor any contracts that we might have already standing, not to break those, but not to sign any new contracts and um, not to cross the picket line um, unless, like I said, we are contracted previously. Over 10,000 writers went on strike earlier this month. 
after the union failed to reach a deal with Disney, Netflix and other media companies for higher pay and safeguards around the use of artificial intelligence, both of which are also of concern to actors. Some filming is continuing despite the writer's strike, but a strike by actors would lead to a broader shutdown across the industry. Negotiations between the actors' union and the studios are scheduled to start next month. The actors' current labor contract expires June 30th. Cost MNS, NTD News. Tucker Carlson is enjoying some strong favorability ratings over Fox News since leaving the media company. A new poll shows Carlson with a net rating a whopping 63 points higher than Fox among conservatives. The survey is from consulting agency Change Research. It has Carlson's net favorability rating among Republicans at plus 59, while Fox News has a minus 4 rating among the same demographic. Carlson parted ways with Fox in late April. Neither side issued details about why he left, whether he was fired, or if he remains under contract. Carlson announced on May 9th that he would bring his show to Twitter. He called the social media company the last big remaining nonpartisan platform in the world. We had retail earnings reports this week, and we're increasingly seeing cracks in the retail sector. Discretionary retailers are feeling the pinch as consumers pull back spending. Here's more. Signs of weakness are showing within the retail industry. That's according to S&P Global Ratings. The credit rating agency is forecasting a possible mild recession this year. Consumers are pulling back certain spending, and that's hurting some retailers. Here's retail and consumer sector lead at S&P Global Ratings, Sarah Wyatt. We're starting to see more and more consumers pulling back in discretionary spending, and they have been very intense inflation for more than a year. Now we're also, they're also being hurt by the higher financing costs, mortgages, car payments, um, credit card balance, service fees, etc. That's crimping their budgets. And so more of their, of their spending is, is being absorbed by basics like grocery. The shifting pattern of consumer spending has had negative impacts on certain retailers, specifically for retailers that are discretionary in nature. For example, apparel, home goods, and electronics. Home Depot also released earnings, and they were disappointed. The Container Store reported 4% decline in their recent quarter. Consumers shifting where they're spending. The risk that that poses for retailers is, well, how quickly are they going to shift, and are they going to continue to pull back? But there are these broader macro indicators that are showing, um, or that are kind of boding to increasing weakness going forward. Wyeth says consumers will likely pull back more and reduce discretionary spending and that people will buy more private label rather than branded product. They will shop at value retailers like Walmart and dollar stores. Consumer spending is critical to the economy. It is a key driver of economic growth. Consumer spending accounts for about two-thirds of U.S. GDP. The National Transportation Safety Board says 10,000 bridges across the nation need to be inspected for a potential safety hazard. During the investigation into a 2022 bridge collapse in Pittsburgh, inspectors found corrosion in some places that was so severe it caused holes in the bridge's legs. The NTSB says the uncoated weathering steel had not been properly maintained. The board is urging the Federal Highway Administration to work with departments of transportation across the U.S. to inspect the 10,000 bridges made with that material.
The busiest day for air travel during the Memorial Day rush is only a week away. The Federal Aviation Administration says Thursday will be the busiest day of the holiday weekend, with more than 51,000 flights scheduled on May 25th. The FAA plans to handle more than 312,000 flights between May 24th and May 30th. While that is a lot of flights, it's still not as many compared to the same period in 2019 before the pandemic. But earlier this week, AAA forecasted that the number of airline passengers over the holiday weekend will be up 11 percent compared to 2019 levels. A Massachusetts woman has been indicted for grand larceny for allegedly trying to steal a $3 million lottery ticket. Carly Nunez, a liquor store clerk, is accused of trying to cash a winning ticket accidentally left behind by a customer. The Plymouth County District Attorney says employees at the Massachusetts State Lottery Headquarters became suspicious of Nunez when she tried to cash it because of the condition of the ticket, which was torn and seemingly burned. They also overheard her arguing with her boyfriend about how to divide the money, an interaction that was caught on lottery surveillance video. Lottery officials contacted state police and opened an investigation, telling Nunez she would get the prize once the investigation was complete. Police pulled surveillance video from the liquor store and saw that Nunez did not buy the ticket and tracked down its rightful owner. The 23-year-old Nunez has been indicted on one count each of larceny from a building, attempted larceny, and presentation of a false claim and witness intimidation. The grand jury also indicted Nunez's co-worker on one count of attempted extortion. A popular fertility app reportedly leaked users' health data to China, and now the company has agreed to pay $200,000. Authorities allege that the app, called Premom, shared users' personal health information for years without their consent. That includes sharing data with Google and two companies based in China. Premom is also now banned from sharing personal health information for advertising purposes and must ensure that the data it shared without users' consent is deleted from third-party systems. The proposed settlement highlights how regulators have stepped up their scrutiny of fertility trackers and health information recently. Premom didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. In Canada, police are looking for a person caught on camera vandalizing more than 400 vehicles. It happened at two car dealerships in Port Coquitlam in the province of British Columbia. Police released security footage they say shows the suspect deliberately scratching the vehicles one by one. In a statement Wednesday, police said they received three reports between January and April about the mass keying incidents. The suspect is believed to be a woman between 40 and 50 years old with shoulder-length blonde hair. Police think she was driving a 2008 to 2013 Ford Escape. They estimate the damages at around 500,000 Canadian dollars. And just ahead, the Wuhan Institute of Virology can no longer get funding from American taxpayers, but... President Biden vetoes a bill to restore tariffs on solar panels, which could be a boost for Beijing. We'll have that and more for you in just a minute. Welcome back. President Biden has canceled his trip to Papua New Guinea. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will go in his place, and Biden will return to the U.S. for debt ceiling talks. 
The trip would have made Biden the first sitting U.S. president to visit the Pacific nation. The visit is meant to counter Beijing's growing influence in the region. Biden and Blinken are both currently in Japan for meetings. The United States has sought to boost its engagement in the Pacific. That's after Beijing signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands last year. Former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison said Papua New Guinea and other countries have faced similar pressure from Beijing to consent to security agreements. The National Institutes of Health is cutting the Wuhan Institute of Virology from taxpayer funding, blocking the lab from using U.S. money for animal testing. Entity's Tiffany Meyer brings us more. The Wuhan Virology Institute is back in the spotlight. The lab has been among the suspected sources of COVID-19, and now it seems the U.S. is pulling tax dollars for it. The National Institute of Health has quietly removed the lab from its list of foreign research facilities that can't qualify for taxpayer funding. For years, the Wuhan lab was a partner of EcoHealth Alliance, which is based in New York. EcoHealth conducted research on bat-based coronaviruses with U.S. funding, those funds totaling over $3 million between 2014 and 2019. 600,000 of those funds went directly to the Wuhan lab. The Wuhan lab is no stranger to controversy. It has a history of questionable lab safety practices. A 2017 video showed its researchers keeping bats in a cage inside the lab and collecting bat samples outdoors with minimal protection measures. After the pandemic, the NIH suspended funding for the bat virus project, but it was renewed earlier this month with modifications. The NIH did not respond to a request for comment. The lab has been at the center of a suspected lab leak origin of the pandemic, including a 328-page report from Senator Marco Rubio. Released Wednesday, the report says in the second half of 2019, a serious bicontainment failure or accident likely involving a viral pathogen likely took place there, adding the most senior Chinese leadership knew of it by at least November 2019. Will President Biden's latest move on solar panels give Beijing a boost? China can now continue selling solar panels in the U.S. without facing tariffs. That's by routing them through other Asian countries. This after Biden vetoed a bill. The move re-paused tariffs on solar panels that come into the country from four Southeast Asian nations, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand and Cambodia. The U.S. gets over 80 percent of its solar panels from them. And these foreign products won't face tariffs until June next year. If lawmakers want to override Biden's veto, they would need a two-thirds majority in both chambers. Before we hear reactions from different sides, here's why the fight over solar panel tariffs is so significant. Biden has been stuck between two sides, companies that are critical for his push toward clean energy and domestic solar panel makers who are asking for tariffs to compete with their Chinese counterparts. For years, China flooded the U.S. market with solar panels, priced so cheap that domestic makers couldn't compete with them. In response, the U.S. slapped tariffs on those Chinese products. But there have been concerns that China has managed to avoid those tariffs by moving solar panels through those four Asian countries. The Commerce Department took action, launching an investigation. The probe halted most solar imports at the time. It also delayed solar installations across the country. That upset solar industry groups, who said it would cost the industry billions of dollars. It's in this context that Biden suspended tariffs on those imported solar panels for two years. 
The effort aimed to create a buffer while domestic manufacturers ramped up production. That's when the Commerce Department found some Chinese solar panel makers were dodging the tariffs. To fight that issue, lawmakers introduced a bill to overturn Biden's decision, signing the need to protect domestic manufacturers from China's unfair trade practices. The bill received bipartisan support, including nine Democrats in the Senate and 12 more in the House. But it also faced strong opposition from some lawmakers and solar industry groups. While on the other hand, Congressmember Dan Kildee, a Democrat that pushed the bill to restore tariffs, expressed his disappointment, saying our workers and businesses will never be able to compete globally unless we hold those who violate U.S. trade laws accountable. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, a delegation of U.S. lawmakers are on a trip to London as they work on countering coercion from the Chinese Communist Party globally. And the group of seven leaders agree to strengthen sanctions against Russia as the Ukrainian president is preparing to join them in Hiroshima. More shortly here on NTD News Today. U.S. lawmakers are visiting London to press for a tougher line on China. It comes the day after the U.K. and Japan signed a landmark defense deal designed to counter aggression from the Chinese regime. And today's Jane Whirl has more for us. A group of U.S. lawmakers are on a three-day visit to London to push for a harder line on China. They're led by Mike Gallagher, the Republican chair of the U.S. Congress Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. And the visit comes at a time when they're increasing their focus on policies that counter the coercion of the Chinese Communist Party on a global scale. Now, as a major ally of the U.S., Britain has been critical of Beijing's human rights, but has recently shown some signs of closer engagement with the Chinese regime. A day earlier, however, the U.K. and Japan signed a new agreement on the Indo-Pacific region. For the Hiroshima Accord, it strengthens the two countries' ties on security and innovation. Here's a reminder of what the British Prime Minister said about the Indo-Pacific region ahead of their meeting. We're increasing our engagement in the region to work with allies like Australia, like Japan, to ensure that the Pacific region does remain free and open. We don't want to see any change to the status quo. Well, the agreement aims to improve semiconductor supply chains, as well as the supply of critical minerals, which are used in mobile phones and everyday electronics, a market that China dominates. And the accord says that the country's position on Taiwan remains unchanged. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. All right. Leaders of the world's richest democracies have agreed to strengthen sanctions against Russia. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is preparing to join them in the Japanese city of Hiroshima. His presence this weekend will put fresh pressure on Russia against the backdrop of a city synonymous with the horrors of nuclear war. The group of seven leaders agreed on Friday to broaden existing measures against Russia. Any exports that could help it in this war against Ukraine would be restricted across the G7 countries. Host of the summit, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida confirmed there was unity and determination among those in the group. The G7, which shares fundamental values, must effectively respond to important issues facing the international community and lead the world. A joint statement from the leaders states the sanctions will include exports of industrial machinery, tools and other technology that Russia uses to rebuild its war machine. 
The G7 countries will also make efforts to ensure sanctions are not circumvented. Breakdowns of German trade data show that its exports to countries bordering Russia have risen sharply. This is fueling concerns that goods are then re-exported from those neighboring states into Russia. A Ukrainian official confirmed President Volodymyr Zelensky will attend the summit on Sunday. Very important things will be decided there, and it is therefore the presence of our president that is absolutely essential in order to defend our interests. Zelensky was in Jeddah on Friday to attend an Arab League summit. Back at the G7, before the first plenary session, the leaders visited the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park and laid wreaths and paid their respects to the victims of the 1945 atomic bombing. A U.S. official said leaders are also expected to issue a statement with a section specific to China, listing issues that include what they called economic coercion and other behavior. The G7 democracies have become increasingly challenged by an ascendant China and unpredictable Russia. Russia is retreating around Bakhmut, according to both Kyiv and the Wagner Mercenary Group. Ukraine's deputy defense minister yesterday said Ukraine repelled a day-long Russian attack in the embattled eastern city. The Ukrainian military on Thursday released footage purporting to show its forces attacking and destroying Russian units near the eastern city of Bakhmut. Reuters has been unable to confirm the location or the date of the video, which was posted to social media by Ukraine's top commander. Both Kyiv and a Russian mercenary group reported further Russian retreats around the city. Kyiv says it has launched local advances as a prelude to an upcoming big counteroffensive that it hopes will turn the tide against Russia's 15-month-old invasion. Ukraine's military said troops had advanced in places by more than a mile, and Ukraine's deputy defense minister said that day-long Russian attacks in the city had been repelled. However, the commander of the Wagner paramilitary group leading the Russian assault on Bakhmut claimed his forces were still advancing on Thursday. But Yevgeny Prigozhin accused commanders of Russia's regular forces of abandoning ground north and south of the city, raising the risk of troops inside being encircled. Near the front line, Ukrainian troops said Russia was bombarding access roads to slow the advances, which has shifted the momentum after months of slow Russian gains. The Russian Defense Ministry has acknowledged some withdrawals from positions near Bakhmut over the past week, but denied Prigozhin's assertions that flanks are crumbling. Britain and the European Union look set to ban Russian diamonds in support of Ukraine. Russia's lucrative metal exports could also be the target in a new round of sanctions. Britain said in a statement today it will announce the ban on Russian diamonds as well as metals from Russia, including copper, aluminum and nickel. A G7 official said there'd be no deal on diamonds among the G7 this weekend, but they would feature in the final summit communique. The European Council president said Europe is also on board to restrict sales of Russian diamonds, but any such move could be derailed by a complex debate within the EU. Belgium, home to the world's biggest diamond trading hub in Antwerp, is against a ban. Coming up, can artificial intelligence do the work of mathematicians? Professors say it's still a ways off. The life of a successful school chess coach in Maine draws a comparison to the Netflix series The Queen's Gambit. We'll have the details for you right here on NTD News Today.
Good to have you back with us. A question many are thinking about, could artificial intelligence put mathematicians out of work? Not yet, apparently. Educators advocate for safety regulations and point the finger at the chatbot's flaws. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. OpenAI's ChatGPT and other chatbots are making waves in academia. AI tools can write essays, generate images or videos, and also do math. But mathematicians aren't fully convinced. In order for mathematics really to be mathematics, it has to operate at the level of kind of logic and reason. A billion examples that something is true does not make it true. And this is a distinction that AI hasn't really been able to cross yet. But is AI really intelligent? Professor of Mathematics Jordy Williamson thinks his job is safe for now. AI is not going to replace me in the short term because AI still can't reason. So the difficult, effortful thought that we do, as mathematicians do every day, uh, AI still cannot do very reliably. Chatbots are pretty good at simple math problems, but there's still much more to be done. Mathematics deals in the abstract, you know, these concepts don't really exist in reality. So the question is, why do we care about the ones that we teach and research, and why do we not care about all the other ones? And there's a certain aesthetic sensibility, perhaps particularly in pure mathematics, that makes it closer maybe to the creative arts. Williamson thinks regulations are needed for everyone's safety. Deepfakes are one example where AI can reproduce someone's physical appearance and voice. I find it both exciting and tremendously worrying at the same time. I feel like there's this big wave coming for us and we've got no idea what's going to happen. Uh, I think that we definitely need regulation and we need to have a discussion about it as a society. Okay. Yep. But Williamson also recognizes AI's potential. I think it really contains the possibility of us understanding very basic things about our universe. So, you know, how do we build a fusion reactor? How do we understand, um, you know, how do we unify general relativity with quantum mechanics? The threat of machines replacing mathematicians isn't new. But for now, mathematicians say AI isn't coming for their jobs. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Apple has restricted the use of ChatGPT and other external AI tools for its employees. This as the company develops similar artificial intelligence technology. Apple is worried about the leak of confidential data by employees who use the AI programs. It has also advised its employees not to use GitHub's Copilot, which is used to automate the writing of software code. Last month, OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, said it had introduced an incognito mode for ChatGPT. The mode does not save users' conversation history or use it to improve its artificial intelligence. Scrutiny has been growing over how ChatGPT and other chatbots manage hundreds of millions of users' data. A successful chess coach who works as a school custodian is drawing a comparison to the Netflix series The Queen's Gambit. His students talk about how his coaching benefits them. David Bishop retired at 50 from his telecommunications job, but he wasn't done with work yet. He decided to become a full-time school custodian and part-time volunteer chess coach. I coach both teams, the Weatherby Elementary and the Reedsburg Middle School teams. And they did very well this season. Um, both teams won the main state uh, team chess tournaments. His middle school team ended up going to the national championship and coming in eighth place. 
but not only has he turned out strong chess players, he's helping those he coaches discover a great way to spend their time. I never thought that, like, starting last year that I'd already be, like, this far into chess, but, like, the more you like something, the more you're going to want to play it. His chess team members see the larger benefits chess has brought to their lives. You get the whole skills about being able to think ahead, so making decisions is easier and really helps develop your brain over time. Bishop talks about the similarities between his story and the Netflix series, but says there are some key differences. There is some similarity between the Queen's Gambit uh, Netflix series and myself in that uh, I am a custodian and um, Mr. Scheibold in that series was a janitor, but I'm a custodian. So my slogan is don't say the J word because custodians, they open a locker if a kid needs it opened. They jumpstart a car if that's needed for any one of the parents. Um, we set up for dances. Um, whereas, you know, I think a, a janitor is, is someone that just cleans and that's it. They don't have a vested interest in the kids. Bishop says the kids have gotten so good that there are a few that beat him in games on a regular basis. But he's not sad. He says it's a good feeling to know he's trained them well. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.